So I normally say that I wanted to be a bullfighter. Yeah. Uh, and then when I was uh, 14 years old, I tried. I tried it uh, miserably, failed. <laughs> What does uh, what failing in bullfighting look like? That that looks yeah. that sounds dangerous. <laughs> yeah, means getting run over by a. Uh, in this, it, it wasn't a bull; it was a calf. Uh, so it was, <laughs> it, it was, uh, it was not a good one. But uh, uh, and it's a kind of an irony because then after a few years, I was I became a, a, a vegetarian and a vegan. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. Hi, welcome to Architecting. I'm Rebecca Wagner, here with the host, Adam Wagner. Hey, Adam, who's on the podcast today? Yeah, hey, so today we have a guy who I think wins the award for best podcast guest voice. He has some very diverse experiences as well. He's from Colombia, but studied in Belgium and then Wisconsin. And he worked in Aspen and Chicago and Tampa, as well as completing projects in China and Rwanda. Then he moved to Denver and has become a very influential person in our urban fabric as a senior architect for RTD, as well as being on the Denver planning board and an AIA director. So who am I talking about? Is it Ignacio Correa Ortiz? Mm-hmm. I saw him speak at a uh, Christopher Kelly event, and he was really great, really inspiring. Yeah. Yeah, he's a really um, magnetic guy. Uh, and after the break for the bonus material, we talk a little bit more about a, a recent burglary that happened to him, uh, and then his, his thoughts on the roles that zoning, social housing, and accessory dwelling units can play within the city. So check it out. Hey, look, so modern Denver is great, right? Yes, we love them. Yeah. Local stories about good architecture. And a new profile about you and architecting in the fall issue. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, you know, modern Denver is not just all about the magazine either. We're now coming up on the best part of the year, Denver Design Week. So from October 16th through the 24th, there are a ton of events and sessions and talks put on by Bonner in Denver. Yeah, there's a lot of really great ones. One that I'm really looking forward to is a session with the photographer James Florio and his work with uh, Ensemble Studio and a new book coming out looks really great. Yeah, there's going to be lots of great events uh, as well as a live architecting show entitled The Voyage Out, Stories from the Early Days of Colorado's Top Architecture Firms. This is going to be with Stephen Dinia, Kevin Nguyen, and Joanne and Hans from ArcDen on October 18th at 11.30 at Pair Workplace Solutions. Come and check it out. Go to www.denverdesignweek.com to check out all the events and reserve your tickets now. How's your Saturday? Uh, so far, so good. This is this is kind of nice. This is the first uh, Saturday recording I've done. It, okay. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. It's good. A little bit more relaxed, right? Y yeah, a little bit. Yeah. You know, I still get, I still get kind of like amped up and nervous for these things, and I thought maybe Saturday would help that, but nope. I still get, still got nervous. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, don't be, don't be. Uh, <laughs> So where are you at right now? Are you 
Are you, I'm, at are you in, I'm actually at my dining table. Nice. Are you in Denver? I am in Denver, yes. Nice. Where are you? Yeah, Denver as well. Okay. Um, yeah. and on the north side. Obviously, you do this because you like doing it, uh, but this is not your main occupation, is it? No. No, yeah. So I'm a, I'm an architect, and I uh, teach at CU part-time, and okay. I, I was at uh, Open Studio Architecture, and just this month, I started my own firm. So... Uh, wow! Congratulations. Yeah, thank that's, you. Uh, that's uh, I, I've done that, and that's uh, that's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, you know, actually, this is the third time I've started started my own firm. So okay, th third time's a charm here. Uh, I think I believe so. Yeah. Um, I keep it. You know, for me, it's like the grass is always greener. I always I always get distracted by the next kind of flashy thing, and I jump to it. And uh, but yeah, no, that's good. That's good. So what is the name of your practice or uh, just under your own name? Yeah, it's called it's called uh, Vessel Office of Architecture. Okay. So I have another partner that's in Connecticut. Uh, so we're, we're kind of doing a remote office um, together. Uh, I like that. I yeah. like very 21st century. And nice. Yeah. You know, I'm a baby boomer. So uh, <laughs> for us, it's a little bit different. I am from the generation that started drafting with uh, pencil and ink and on mylar and uh, bamwan and whatever you have. And, and then we transitioned through our, uh, well, my last, my last years of uh, uh, undergraduate or my professional degree, I went to school for architecture in Colombia. Hmm. Um, actually my first, uh, college experience was at a school of fine arts uh, actually a school of arts and crafts it's called uh l'école de sart visuel de, de la Campo and hmm. in brussels and this school was funded by henry van de velde who you may have studied in your uh, architecture history classes because he is the one who started the arts and crafts school in Weimar that later became uh, the Bauhaus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, hmm. When Germany entered in the First World War, they kicked out all the non-German citizens, including Van de Velde, who was Belgian. And he went to Brussels and started this school um, and appointed Walter Gropius to do the, uh, uh, to remain as the director of the school and then eventually became uh, that so um, so wait so let, let's step back for a second so well first off you, you can't get away without answering this question who, who are you ah well i'm uh i'm a dad a husband an architect <laughs> an urban planner uh a uh, an urban designer and uh i uh, i'm just a uh i'm also a migrant in a way mm -hmm. uh I came to the U.S. 30 years ago, um, and so what am I? Who am I? Yes, I. Uh, that's that's a difficult question because most times we reply to that as "What am I?" or "What am I doing?" as opposed to "Who I am." Um, so, in that sense, I would be a philosopher. I, I studied mm -hmm. philosophy uh, <laughs> as an amateur. Um, and uh, in that sense, I am a regenerativist. 
hmm. uh, which is kind of my, my own philosophy of how I like to live my life, uh, how I um, think that my career can be helpful to uh, my environment and to what I do. I So the, the theory that I have behind regenerativism is that everything that we do right now needs to help us to regenerate the environment in which we live so that we are not taxing our uh, ecosystems as much or our <laughs> social systems or our economies and so on. And so uh, that's kind of the uh, theory behind uh, regenerativism. Nice. That's a very uh, complete answer. I like that. So, so how'd you get there? So, okay, you started in Colombia, right? You you grew up there. So I normally say that I wanted to be a bullfighter. Yeah. Uh, and then when I was uh, 14 years old, I tried, like like any kid in the U.S. wanted to be uh, an astronaut, I guess, uh, <laughs> or at least in that age. So I I uh, I love bullfighting. I. I love the idea of bullfighting. And when I was 14, my friend, uh, school friend, his dad had a school for bullfighters and I tried it, uh, miserably failed. What, um, what does failing in bullfighting look like? That that looks, yeah. that sounds dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it means getting run over by a, uh, in this, it, it wasn't a bull, it was a calf. Uh, so it was, <laughs> it, it was, uh, it was not a good one, but, uh, uh, and it's a kind of an irony because then after a few years, I was, I became a, a, a vegetarian and a vegan <laughs> and so on. Uh, so uh, it is, uh you know, I was looking at it from from uh, a different cultural perspective. Um, I know bullfighting today is uh, not uh, is, is is not very well seen. It's very much un, not understood as well. Um, and obviously, the the blood and gore is obviously something that turns a lot of people off. Um, but there is there is an ancient ritual there. Uh, and there is uh, uh, an art, not a sport, and so on. I'm not defending it. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just uh, mm -hmm. explain, trying to explain it, which is really difficult to explain. Um, so last time I went to bullfight was when I was on my honeymoon back home in Colombia. And uh, my wife, uh, we had to walk out. And so mm -hmm. that was the last time I was there many years ago. I've been married for 26 years, so. But was that the thing that, you know, growing up for me, it was everybody, every boy wanted to play in the NBA. You know, was that the thing in Colombia that everybody, every kid wanted to be a bullfighter? Or were you kind of an anomaly in that? And what, what drew you to it? No, every kid wanted to be a soccer player, mm. but uh, I, I was not good. I'm actually mm. a referee or I am retiring as a referee this year as mm. a soccer referee. Um so that was the first thing I wanted to do. Uh, my mom is a painter and mm. uh, a philosophy teacher and uh, many other things. He's a Renaissance woman. My dad, uh, he was a diplomat and a lawyer and a manager of uh, insurance companies and so on. Hmm. And uh, so when I graduated high school, I did a semester of architecture uh, in my hometown. And then I went to Belgium where my parents were living hmm. and I did my first year of school uh, in fine arts. 
I did not have what a fine artist or a successful fine artist have to have, which is discipline. Hmm. Um, and instead of spending my time in the studio, I was doing graffiti on the streets, um, doing something that actually you see in Bansky nowadays. Uh, so I was ahead of my times by, you know, 40 years and so on. It wasn't just defacing things. It was trying to create some kind of art with stencils and hmm. so on. Um, uh, I decided to come back to Colombia and finish architecture in my hometown, Bucaramanga, at the Santo Tomas University. It's a five-year program. You end up as a license art well you have to apply for the license but you you qualify to be a licensed architect as soon as you hmm. come out of the five-year program wow. uh so i had a small practice on my own for a little bit uh which was very interesting because the relationship of the architect with the general contractor um we call them in colombia maestros you know, mm. the masters, <laughs> uh, the general contractors are really masters in Colombia and they, they know all the trades and so on. So we had that kind of, uh, I had that relationship with a maestro until I got a, uh, a scholarship to go to the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee uh, to do a joint master's in architecture and urban planning. Yeah, but but why there? I mean, that's a pretty big jump. Why you, Milwaukee? You've, you've ah. already had one one big jump of of Belgium. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, my my idea was to go to Japan. Hmm. Um, my sister had a friend who had got, who had gone to Japan, and I was enamored with the idea, so I applied for uh, for a scholarship, which um, I did not get. I had studied Japanese. I was getting ready. Hmm. I actually did get uh, the admission into the university through the Monbusho uh, uh, government, uh, basically the uh, entity in Japan that offers the, uh, the scholarship. But the Colombian side did not uh, give me that. Uh, actually, I think that somebody had uh, some... Uh, was better favored, whatever. So the scholarship went to somebody mm. else. These were very competitive scholarships. While I was doing that, a professor from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Ernest Alexander, was visiting uh, Columbia on a, a Fulbright scholarship. And uh, I served as his interpreter and translator. And uh, he asked me about my plans. I told him and said, well, you should apply for the uh, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. So I did. And uh, one thing didn't happen, the other thing happened. They were in rapid succession. So I ended up in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 92. Hmm. Sorry, in 89. So I was there from 89 to 92, a three-year double joint master's architecture and urban planning. Um, my intent was to study urban design at that time. I think the only one school of urban design in the U.S. was uh, the Graduate School of Design, GSD, at uh, um, Harvard. Yeah. Harvard. Thank you. Hmm. Do you th I mean, do you think about that? The, the odds of that professor coming and you being a translator for him and, and Indy translates to you going to this school and being in this country and 
I mean, I guess you can say that with most things about how life ends up, but. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Life is uh, minor things. I'm going to tell you a quick story because it's not the subject of this, but the way I met my wife, uh, she was a DJ at KSPN in Aspen, Colorado. <laughs> I called to request a song and, uh, you know. Uh, and her number turned. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i i called the radio station and and then you know that was that was that was the the rest is history as they say okay so you're in wisconsin and you mm -hmm. you're you're studying urban design and i mean doesn't doesn't columbia have a pretty i mean that architectural program was pretty heavy in urban design right? absolutely yeah yeah and what 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 kind of why do you think that is it within within Columbia and within that program well first of all i'm i'm uh, fascinated that you know about uh the colombian uh program because it's different yeah it's a five year program and uh from day one you start studying architecture so uh first year is basic design so you are designing with uh well you start with the talk about bauhaus yeah mm -hmm. you start with the point and then the line and mm. then the plane and then colors and and then you start evolving from there the last semesters of uh architecture are typically urban design studios hmm. my thesis was uh a plan for uh taking a large district of downtown bucaramanga and revitalizing it um the blocks in Colombia are 100 meters by 100 meters, so they're square. And back in the day, the center of the block was basically the backyards of uh, of the old houses. And as hmm. the city has grown and densified, then uh, the, you have to figure out ways to get to the center of the block and so on. So that was kind of part of the uh, of the process of that. I did something similar, and we can talk about that later for my thesis at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, which was the first time I did a joint, uh, the, the very first time that was done at that university, a joint architecture and urban planning thesis, uh, not just a graduate a project uh, or a, a final project. So uh, yes, architecture in Colombia is progressive. It's a five-year program. And uh, you end up uh, doing uh, urban design studios in the last year or in the last two years. And I did actually the last two years were very heavily in urban design. Hmm. Is that, I mean, Columbia seems pretty dense, at least the city centers, uh, a lot of density. And is that because of the kind of extreme topography that forces people into smaller areas or like... Is that true? Okay. So we're in Denver, right? Right. So we don't have extreme topography here. Right. We've got nice uh, plains. Pretty much the American West and the Midwest, they, we, we can just uh, sprawl all mm -hmm. over. But I think the, uh, the difference is also in mobility. Hmm. Uh, you know, not everybody in Colombia has a car, and that is a big difference. Um, in uh, So... Or, or at least, I mean, that's changing like the rest of the world. Uh, and that's part of the problem for regenerativism that 
we cannot um, have a uh, well the, the urban form is a lot linked to how we move around um, where we work uh, where we play and so on so so it has to do a lot with that uh, Bucaramanga my hometown is on a plateau so hmm. the hope it's actually the the uh, the geo the geography is amazing because it's like a series of plateaus and Bucaramanga is one of those and uh, so the whole plateau is now developed. Bogota, on the other hand, for instance, is on a uh, on a high altitude lake bed, pretty mm -hmm. much like Mexico City. Mm -hmm. um, whereas other cities like Medellin, for instance, is in a valley and so on. So it's not just topography; it has to do a lot with uh, how the economy is and so on. And it's a lot. Uh, more efficient to develop densities and that is actually one of the problems that uh, we have here in denver um i am a member of the uh, denver planning board which is the planning and zoning commissions in, in our cities and one of my responsibilities as the representative of architects in the uh, planning board is to keep on pushing on the dialogue for higher densities. Mm. Um, now, Denver in itself is landlocked. Uh, we have kind of used most of the land, but we still have a lot of a space to grow up. Uh, I mean, to grow in, in altitude. So there are several districts that I have been very supportive of to increase densities. There are others that I hope our blueprint, which is part of the comprehensive plan, changes to allow us for more density and so mm -hmm. on. Yeah. So you you got that sort of one type of urbanism in Colombia, and then you went to to Wisconsin, and were you able to kind of continue that same line of study there, or was it a totally different experience? So. Um, I said I had a scholarship to go to Wisconsin. In reality, it wasn't quite a scholarship. I had to work for it. So my job was a teaching assistant for the urban design studio with the undergraduate students. Uh, so I had to really experience firsthand with the professors I was assisting how uh, how to understand the uh, the relationship of uh, design and urban design to a curriculum. Um, so I guess in a way that was my first cultural shock to understand suburbia. Hmm. Um, but the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee is, or UWM, is a, it's an urban university, it's within the city core um, so it's not like many architecture schools that you see in the U.S. that are in small towns, rural settings, and so on. This is this is an urban place, so it had already ingrained in its culture some of that. Um, and so I guess it's a good segue to my to my uh, to my thesis because my thesis was: Can you redevelop? Uh, an American city urban core in a way that you can increase density, have equity, mm -hmm. and have more accessibility. So what I was looking at 
is Walker's Point neighborhood, pretty much like Elyria Swansea here in Denver, mm -hmm. a neighborhood that is mostly Latino, uh, split by highway, and uh, that is pre had been pretty much redlined throughout uh, history and so on. So uh, one of the premises was the, uh, hold on, my Siri is trying to get into the conversation. Turn off Siri. <laughs> okay, so uh, let me just go back to Walker's Point is like Illyria Swansea and uh, the thesis was, you know, can we redevelop uh, a neighborhood close to the, the urban core that uh, is mostly a minority that has been redlined and, and so on. And one of the elements of uh, the uh, response was to allow for additional dwelling units. I wasn't calling them that that time. It, I mean, I mind you, this is 1992, but we were saying the way to increase density is by allowing, you know, uh, these were homes built in the 1800s by Polish immigrants and so on that were pretty good homes, three stories and so on, that we could actually split into uh, flats and have mm -hmm. three units in, in that and so on. So it was trying to set up uh, an approach to urban uh, redevelopment, <laughs> that's part of the re regenerativism by allowing more density in, in this and allowing the development of uh, granny flats or what we call today additional dwelling units. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was very well received, um, had good marks, and uh, uh, the director of planning at the time um, I requested a copy of the, uh, of the thing and so on. The director that followed was Peter Park, who became later a uh, director of uh, planning here in Denver and who was also my colleague, <laughs> and we were uh, colleagues also in the Planning and Design Institute, which was one of the jobs that I had with my professors at uh, the uh, University of Wisconsin. Hmm. So, you, so you do this thesis and this idea of of regenerating maybe underserved or redlined areas, and you graduate and you move to Aspen. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, <laughs> how, that is true. Uh, how did how did that happen? How had that decision? You heard you heard a, a radio DJ and you just followed. To, to no, 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 no. <laughs> I, 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 I hadn't turned the radio on at that time. Uh, a friend of mine followed. Actually, there's always love involved somewhere, right? A friend of mine, uh, a uh, one of my one of my students, and uh, uh, a, a person who later became an architect. He he followed his girlfriend to Colorado. Uh, because she was a, an interior designer. She got a job in Breckenridge. Hmm. So my last winter vacation, they invited me to spend it with them. So I went there and I learned to ski and I fell in love with, <laughs> uh, with the sport. Uh, so I got a job, uh, Copper Mountain, putting people in boots. Huh. 
and I could take a lesson anytime. So I learned how to ski, how to snowboard and how telemark ski. And uh, uh, so after I graduated, I came to Aspen. It was uh, the middle of the recession, but uh, 92. But uh, uh, I guess they were hiring in Aspen. So the first interview I had, they offered me the job. I took it and uh, I was there for three years. Um, so what was my experience there? Yes, uh, designing homes for the uh, billionaires is not my cup of tea. And that, that was CCY, right? That you worked for? Correct. Well, yeah. back then it was called CGY. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also did a lot of hospitality. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where my expertise was used. Uh, and back in those days, we were doing illustrations in uh, in uh, watercolor and pen and ink and so on. So I was also doing a lot of their illustrations, although they had, uh, I can't remember Mark's name. Uh, he had, They had another illustrator, architect too, who was just an amazing illustrator. So he was doing some of those uh, renderings as well. Hmm. Um, but... While I was there, I realized something that uh, I, I wasn't getting fulfilled. That my uh, my my background as architect and uh, urban designer was not really being fulfilled with my practice uh, with CGY, um, and uh, so I started. Uh, looking around for things and I was able to be part of two initiatives that they are now defunct, but they lasted for a number of years. One was the uh, uh, Latino Networking Council. And what we were doing um, was basically organizing around the communities, the, the, the Latino communities in the Roaring Fork Valley. Uh, and uh, so we had the people that work in Aspen in hospitality and so on, they live typically down Valley all the way to rifle, uh, which is uh, a commute of 40 miles or more. Mm. And actually more than that, because 40 miles is all the way to Glenwood Springs. So even further. Um, So uh, we try to organize around that. One of the things that we did and that my architecture experience uh, was helpful was looking for grants to retrofit the uh, trailer homes in which they lived. So just imagine that in the 50s and the 60s, the ski bombs were living in trailer homes. Now in the 90s, 30 years later, people were using the same trailer homes without any kind of retrofitting. So the energy efficiency was really bad and so on. So um, we wrote a, a few grants to fund uh, and basically we got some uh, foam, uh, insulation foam machines and we kind of helped uh, uh, super insulate some of these. Uh, Hmm. We tried to do a lot of uh, passive solar with the uh, trailers as well, like trying to attach some kind of south facing uh, greenhouse to get some heat gains. Uh, Those ended up just in paper. Um, Hmm. But uh, yeah, there was a a lot of uh, uh, thinking around that and then the other one was more about sustainability in general although back in those days we were not using the term sustainability uh, uh, but we were talking uh, this was the healthy mountain communities initiative a project founded by the denver urban league 
And so again, we're talking about uh, issues of mobility and housing and, and so on. So that gave me a little bit of purpose. Plus uh, hiking in the mountains was uh, another reason what made me stay there at least for, for those three years. And then, and then that, that feeling of unfulfillment just built up and you had to have a change, had to move on. What was that? What was that? Yeah. Like? Yeah. I was very restless. I, for, hmm. for a long time, I, I didn't have a, a job for longer than three years. Uh, so I, I was always looking for a new challenge, I guess. So, um, I, when, before I came to Aspen, I had interviewed with Skid Morrowinds and Merrill. Mm. And um, when, when you know, it came the time, I l called them back and said, what happened? They said, well, just to have an offer here if, mm. if you want to come here. So uh, uh, my girlfriend and I moved to Chicago. We got married in Chicago. Uh, our baby was born in Chicago 25 years ago, and uh, uh, so I took a job with uh, with Skidmore, and uh, we had uh, this was a global urban design practice. So I was in their urban design group. Um, uh, so that was a uh, an experience of again three years. Um, I guess some of the really good projects that uh, that we did was. Well, these this were really interesting projects, a lot of learning lessons from there. Um, most of our clients were, um, at least the our Chinese clients were uh, kind of, I don't know if you can call uh, a Chinese official an oligarch because it's a communist country. So <laughs> I don't know how we call those, but... Um, these were actually people high up on the uh, on the uh, Communist Party who were also developers. Um, so uh, we did uh, a really good project that I lost a battle, and this is one of uh, my my biggest uh, uh, lessons from from that experience. Uh, I lost a battle to try to. So we had a, a large parcel. Um, I can think of uh, something like about 20 to 30 acres mm. in the third ring road of uh, Beijing uh, and uh, was to create an international center. So basically something for expatriates, people from uh, the US and the UK and uh, our uh, countries who were doing business in here. So it was kind of to develop um, a, a modern uh, urban center, if you want, on this third ring road and so on. On the lands of an existing udon or hudong, which is a traditional uh, Chinese street and so on. So uh, I my battle there was to preserve the hudong to uh, basically allow for the new development to integrate to the uh, to the existing uh, historic pattern. Uh, I think that was pretty much well, maybe I don't know if that was the beginnings of the regenerativism, but it, it had to do with it because I mean we were erasing history. 
And mm-hmm. we had actually ended up doing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but uh, uh, it, it was it was interesting. Uh, the other pro we we worked in two other projects. Uh, the uh, I worked as uh, the uh, principal designer on the uh, grounds for the Jim Mao Tower, which was at the time one of the uh, candidates to be the tallest building in the world, um, and so did some of the uh, ground uh, design approach to the to the building and so on. But the other one was a project for Macau. And again, uh, Macau back uh, in the in the mid '90s was getting ready to go back to China. Um, the uh, the uh, Macau had been a colony of the Portuguese, and uh, by the deal was that in '98 it would revert back to uh, to China. So the developers in there wanted to maximize their uh, entitlements for casinos and hotels and so on. Macau is the Las Vegas of Southeast Asia. Yeah. So <laughs> so that was uh, one of the things that, that we did. We made a major mistake, uh, which was in our design, we unintentionally crossed the international boundary uh, with a pier <laughs> and that derailed that project. Um, there are some remnants of that. You can see in Google Earth that uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, components that we were talking about uh, were used uh, uh, for redeveloping Macau, now or at least this part of Macau. Um, yeah, yeah, we had many other projects and so on, but yeah, that was that was the Skidmore experience. Great people, a lot of work. Um, back in those days, uh, there were weeks we worked uh, about a hundred hours. <laughs> That wears on you. Well, yeah, and and uh, and the family's patience too. Yeah, yeah, with little kids. What did that start to fulfill you a little bit more? You know, working more with, with master planning, or still was that those oligarchs or whoever? You know, it's not the same as your thesis. Good segue for for my for my next job. My my next job was with the Center for Neighborhood Technology hmm. in Chicago. And that was also another three-year experience. Um, this is a nonprofit, and uh, CNT has been uh, a, a leader on many things. They were the first people who were talking about uh, car share, the uh, share mobility uh, applications that we see now in, in many places. Um, they were created back in the... Uh, I think it was 70s energy crisis um, and looking at uh, adaptable and neighborhood appropriate technologies. Um, my job there was had nothing to do with architecture, uh, had to do a lot with urban design, but more so with uh, community organizing. Uh, so we had my job, my title was, and this is the first time that the word sustainability gets used there. I was a sustainable Calumet project manager. Hmm, 1997, uh, maybe. Uh, 96, 97. My, yeah, my child was born in 96, so it was around that time. 
when he was a baby. And this was a really fulfilling. Did a lot of things, all regarding air quality, water quality, biodiversity conservation, transportation. I got to do uh, one of the first uh, transit-oriented development symposium, hmm. symposia. Um, so what I did was I captured the uh, Congress for the New Urbanism was going to meet in Milwaukee that year. So I, I captured some of the uh, some of the uh, key note speakers and brought them to Chicago for for this. Um, so uh, Barnett and some others were involved in this. And so we did uh, a lot of workshops regarding transit-oriented development in the most challenged areas of of uh, southeast chicago the calumet region actually the calumet river is one of the smaller watersheds in the uh in, in the continental u.s because uh it drains onto lake michigan uh historically it used to drain the lake lake michigan used to drain into the mississippi basin mm-hmm. um and since then this has become a flight path for all the migratory birds. So it's an area of great interest for biodiversity conservation because of its wetlands and so on. But also because of the wetlands, it became an ideal place to put all the steel mills in the, uh, in the uh, 19th century, hmm. 18th century, late 18th, early 19th century. Um, because back then we thought that wetlands were wastelands, right? Hmm. Um, so uh so this is this is a very heavily industrialized area a lot of uh, it's the most dense super fun sites which is basically the most polluted sites in in uh in the u.s according to the epa um a lot of uh cleanup that needs to be done so my job in reality was as a community organizer and uh when we were prepping for this, you ask uh, what was my most significant project. I don't. There, there are many, but from this experience, I think that uh, our best claim of fame was that we stopped the Napalm Express. The Napalm Express was a because Indiana. So the Calumet straddles both Illinois and Northwest Indiana. Hmm. Indiana at the time, and I. I think they are still not the best, uh, had really poor environmental laws. So in Indiana, you could legally burn napalm uh, without scrubbers and without any kind of uh, uh, environmental controls. (laughs) Um, And as you know, uh, napalm is basically styrofoam and gasoline. And there's a lot of dioxins that uh, come out of, uh, of this, especially if you burn it. And so on. So, um, again, this was a coalition of many people. I was just one part of it in the organizing side. But uh, we created a coalition that stopped the Napalm Express, hmm. which was going to come from San Diego to uh, Northwest Indiana to this facility to get burnt. Um, so so that was that was a, a good victory. Crazy. Uh, and then what what ended that so was that another three years there three three so, three yes exactly yeah. yeah and and uh so so what that ended was uh this employment was under a grant 
from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. So it expired and I had to make the decision to become a grant writer or to go back to become a designer. Hmm. And I decided to become a designer. One of my professors said, uh, well, uh, they are building a, uh, a light rail system or they, they are doing the EIS for a light rail system in Tampa, Florida. Hmm. So uh, I ended up in Tampa uh, helping write this uh, um, EIS for uh, a light rail that hasn't happened yet. Hmm. So this was happening at the same time as fast tracks. You know, we're now in the early 2000s. Uh, cities are applying for federal funding for their mobility solutions. And uh, uh, Tampa was competing for the same uh, amount of money. It had to go to a referendum that it passed here in Denver in 2004. In Tampa, it did not pass. Hmm. Uh, people did not support it, um, uh, which, you know, it was it, it was uh, a, a misfortune in a way for Tampa because it, it could have really helped, especially Tampa had a, a better option of serving more uh, population than Denver had at the time. Yeah, so it would have been, I think, in the eyes of the FDA, would have been a much better proposal. Um, but it did not pass. So that was um, not a three-year experience, but a two-year experience with with the company who was doing the the EIS. And I moved to another company in Tampa, based in Omaha, that uh, was doing urban design nationwide. Yeah. So. So I started, so I continue being an urban designer um, from that uh, point of view and did a lot of uh, really good work, uh, proposals for streetcars, some of those which happened. Um, so our focus was mostly on, on, uh, on streetcars, but we did a lot of form-based code, uh, um, a lot of uh, corridor planning, uh, stationary planning, and uh, we did also some architecture. Actually, I did some architecture with uh, with the previous company. Uh, I was, you know, again, you cannot claim all the all the uh, all the fame from one project because even if you are Calatrava, <laughs> you cannot claim it all. You you have to rely on people, right? So we did we we could, uh, we did the uh, the maintenance facility for the streetcar in uh, in in Tampa so we were not able to to do the uh, the light rail but we did a streetcar and uh, uh, the streetcar maintenance facility was in Ybor City Ybor mm -hmm. City is a district of Tampa which is known to be the cigar factory center of uh, you know the Caribbean in those days, well, the the uh, this part of the Atlantic, um, for for many years, especially in the 19th century. Uh, so we kind of did something context appropriate, and and so on. It's it's a beautiful facility. I'm I'm proud of it actually. Hmm. Uh, um, but uh, with with uh, the next company I went to, we were doing a lot of uh, streetcar as well, uh, and so on. That was HDR. Or, yes, yeah. that is correct. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you decided to to move to the city that did get the light rail. Is that what happened? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was so, that choice to come back to Colorado? 
Well, it was a, it was a it was a lifestyle choice. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, my wife. When I met my wife, she had just moved to Colorado, hmm. and then I kind of dragged her back to the Midwest. She had grown up in uh, near Chicago, so I brought her back hmm. to to the Midwest and uh, and then to Tampa. And she's like, "Okay, we need to go back <laughs> to Colorado." And our son was about to enter middle school, so it was a really good time. To make him move, we didn't want to move him uh, at any other time. So we came back to Colorado, this time to Denver. Um, I had passed an opportunity before going to Chicago uh, of coming to Denver, uh, and I think that that was uh, that, that, that was a good decision. Uh, in the time, you know, so let's say from 2000 to no, no, from hold on, from 96 to so in about 10 years, uh, Denver really grew. Uh, into a, a, a much more solid city. Hmm. So I came here. Uh, I did not get work on on uh, on the uh, fast tracks project right away. I actually um, came to work for uh, 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 sorry, uh, us architecture. I was going to say hmm. SOM for us architecture, and I had a really good experience there. Hmm. Uh, the uh, uh, the urban design practice was head by uh, Carl Worthington, hmm. um, now retired, but uh, a landscape architect and architect who had um, a really good flair for for urban design. So I call it my three years of schooling in Boulder because this was in the in their Boulder office. Hmm. Um, and uh, we did many, many good projects. Um, the highlight of all those uh, was the, pro the, the number of projects that we did for the Rwandan government, including a master mm. plan for the city of Kigali for a new city center um, with uh, partners from Ida at the time, a landscape architecture firm that is now part of a, uh, a major corporation. And uh, uh, um, two fellows who were in that company that have now passed away, Andrew Irvine, uh, who just passed very recently, and, uh, and Ross Butler. Hmm. Um, but uh, really great designers, a really dynamic project. Uh, we made a lot of uh, really good contributions to uh, the uh, city of Kigali. And so we were able actually to get an award from the APA, uh, the Daniel Burnham Award hmm. for our uh, work on, on those master planning. And we did not only for the city of Kigali, for the city of Ramagana and uh, some more uh, planning work there. So uh, that, was, that was great. Were you able to kind of integrate some of those other ideas of regeneration and and plugging in with the history of the place in those projects oh, yeah. yeah yeah i i guess actually you know there were some flashy projects there hospitals and so on uh we were proposing the government center um uh and uh but you know you have to understand something about uh rwanda rwanda uh had just uh, survived uh well not survive, but they had just gone through a really horrible genocide mm -hmm. uh, in which uh, uh, two ethnic groups basically uh, 
chop themselves to uh, to death. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, but the remarkable thing about what Rwanda did was something called the Kachasas, which is the uh, the reconciliation effort that the communities had to uh, just recognize the atrocities that had been committed and had community tribunals that allowed people to reintegrate into society and allow them to uh, express their remorse and really to reintegrate into a uh, multi-ethnic uh, community. Uh, so one of the projects, and this is the, the, the one that I'm most proud of, it's not the flashiest one, but uh, what I proposed, and uh, it is, uh, I don't know how far it has gone because I haven't kept track of, of the progress, but there were some informal settlements um, that were part of the, uh, of the uh, project area. Some of the land was mostly kind of rural, you know, dispersed housing and so on. But there were some areas that were uh, informal settlements, refugees getting close to the urban centers and so on. And uh, uh, no water, no services and so on. And the proposal that, uh, that we did, and I, uh, I was pushing really hard for this, was to formalize them. Um, with the help that at the time in Rwanda there was not much private property hmm. so so uh, if you allowed people to remain in the lands that they were occupying and give them community ownership you would actually help them uh, you know you, you make something better when is when when you own it right and uh, so, so we took this this informal settlement, and it was just a model. Could have been replicated in many other uh, informal settlements, not only in Rwanda but anywhere in Brazil, in Colombia, uh, anywhere you have uh, in what in Colombia call invasion neighborhoods, um, and allow them to formalize. So you just say, "Hey, uh, this is your abode." And then you're allowed to stay there and uh, you're allowed to, instead of having cardboard walls, you can, you know, have them from more durable materials and so on. The streets would get formalized and, uh, and then, uh, so you start having uh, pretty much like European cities developed over the centuries, right? There was somebody built a house here and there was a cow path there and there was somebody built another house there. And all of a sudden you have like this beautiful organic city mm -hmm. uh, and so on. So it was pretty much the same idea, bringing services. So, um, you know, they had a, a number of social prog programs that uh, I was proposing, like, for instance, in order to, to bring water to the neighborhood, you didn't have to bring water to every single house. You can just bring it to a place like it would happen back as in the European example in which the water was, the water fountain in the, uh, in the uh, village plaza or whatever. And then around that, you could develop some services like daycare. So the, the grandpas and the grandmas can take uh, care of uh, the children while the parents are going to to work and so on. So it had 
um, some some value in that. I think that was to me was the most significant uh, um, uh, contribution to uh, the thought of how can you improve informal settlements in a city like uh, Kigali. Hmm. Yeah. So okay. So you, you've you've worked at CCY at at SOM at HDR at Oz. Three 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 five two whatever and and then you and you've been integrating architecture and master planning and 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 then you end at R, uh, RTD. So how, what was that like and how and that's been what you've been there ten years uh, ten years yeah and so that's by far kind of the longest you've stayed somewhere oh yeah and yeah. so actually it seems like you're fulfilled in that so how did how did all these things come together and and drop you off at this point that you're at here yeah uh so so yeah you're right uh there, there was a period actually between us and uh and rtd um so most of us lost our jobs uh during the 08 recession mm. and uh so i started my own business called urban designer mm. uh which you can still find at urbandesigner.com. Now that website is going to become a blog for a research trip that I am about to start mm -hmm. uh, on September 19th on uh, troglodyte architecture, and we can talk about yeah. that. Um, but uh, so I started my own company, and I was doing everything I could, really. Uh, I was helping uh, a uh, California-based company do master planning in China. Uh, so I went back to China to, well, I didn't go back to China. I was doing the work from, from Denver, but it was, I, I, I mean, literally, uh, figuratively, I went back to China to do master planning, uh, for major developments, uh, mostly north of Beijing. Um, uh, so that was one thing. Uh, the other thing I did was I learned, uh, solar photovoltaic systems and uh, did the course for the certification with NAPSA, which is the, the national organization that certified solar uh, uh, design and, and installations. I tried to create my own company, which uh, I would not be able to do because I cannot compete with uh, the Namastes and all the other companies who have a, a better relationship in the market. Hmm. Um, uh, so I ended up then teaching uh solar uh design in in a uh, technical school um and uh, i was doing updates to the comprehensive plans in aspen and in garfield county uh so i was doing all kinds of things and uh it's uh, a recession is not the best time to start your own company <laughs> i could not make the company grow and i said well i need to go back and and uh, look for work. Uh, there were two jobs available, or I had two offers uh, for a suburban municipality and with RTD. And I said, "Well, I'll I'll, I'll do my typical three years with <laughs> RTD because this was after almost three years of having urban designer, mm -hmm. right? So I'll do three years with RTD, and and then I'll move on." Um, what I have found that I really like of working for RTD is my clients because my client is the community. Hmm. Um, and that really fulfills me. 
um, you know, we we're talking about Santiago Calatrava, and uh, he said to to uh, RTD at some point when he was proposing the bridge over Peña Boulevard, mm. you know, that uh, budgets are for small minds. <laughs> and I am like, well, you know, there's something wrong here. Uh, you know, budgets are actually part of the reality and we need to, uh, we have a responsibility um, with the resources that we have. So with digressing that, I, I think his, uh, his structural design is, is really good and uh, very creative, uh, very organic in a way. But uh, in that sense, he completely failed the mark. So I think the responsibility of uh, serving a community is, is key. And it has its challenges. Um, uh, right now, we're installing the uh, 15L, which is the uh, service on East Colfax from downtown Denver Civic Center all the way to uh, uh, Tower Road, basically, depending on the service, uh, which is kind of the L stands for limited, which is kind of a, an express services. So we are putting uh, new urban furniture, if you want, with uh, uh, real-time data and, and so on. and. Uh, so the process to get to the design doing the, uh, the the community participation, because one of the key things of working for a transit agency is that uh, you, you are, I say, as the designer, and this is the difference between Calatrava and, uh, and Ignacio. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he can do projects without budgets. That's one thing. And he does projects out of his uh, imagination. My designs are based on the interpretation of my client's aspirations. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm an interpreter. Um, I, I paint, you know, I, and I, I, I can do my, my uh, creative uh, stuff in, in that sense. But when I am designing, I am interpreting what the user is going to need. And I think that is the key difference uh, between architecture and, and, uh, and real urban design, because the real urban design is not uh, portraying the, uh, the greatness of a creative mind, but it's really portraying, or it's really interpreting what a community needs to be regenerative in a way. Hmm. What can you do in order to allow uh, for a community to be better and so on. So I think that through design, we will see how these improvements are going to be affecting um, our users. Mm. And uh, we have to, you know, brace ourselves because they are going to get tagged uh, as I was doing when I was uh, uh, a teenager. Yeah, payback. Uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so that is kind of the uh, the, the the situation there, um, and that I don't mind as much as the vandalism, um, because there is a big sentiment in our community of uh, inequity, and uh, so a public investment uh, many people don't see as uh, a uh, something to to their benefit, right? Um, 
but uh, you know, it's it's. I, I think that goes into a different conversation. We're going to have uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, September 15, with the American Institute of Architects, Colorado, a chat about equity and uh, about um, uh, diversity in architecture and in urban design and in planning with uh, Don Elliott and myself uh, as the panelists. Hmm. Uh, and it's part of the the uh, the town hall meetings that the AIA Colorado does. So hmm. uh, that, that should be a very good in, uh, conversation. The reason why I say this is because I was starting to get into a little bit of the uh, of the equity issues. Uh, and I don't know if uh, we want to talk much about this, but uh, that is that is a real a uh, real thing. Yeah, I mean, because it seems like it's been a, a real thread throughout your career and, and your passions. And I mean, obviously, RTD has a lot of opportunities and how it can start to address that within the city. But then, yeah, you've you've been, you do so many other things like AIA Colorado, uh, AIA Denver, right? You were the the director for a while or the, the president. Um, and um with the planning association and everything as well how maybe let's see if i can make a good question out of that but what what are the what are the opportunities that you get the most excited about with rtd's future and how it can start addressing some of those issues of inequity or or can it or does it you know yeah well so uh, you have to realize that rtd uh, well, RTD's mission is to provide safe, clean, reliable, courteous, accessible, and cost-effective mobility throughout the region. So it's about moving people, right? So, you know, an architect plays a small part in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but what excites me about this is, and and I, I'm not saying that this is going to happen, but uh, Phil Washington was the uh, CEO and general manager of RTD a few years ago. Now he's in a similar capacity at the Denver International Airport or DEN now. And one of the things that he said while he was in uh, the, uh, uh, as, as the CEO of LA Metro was that he was trying to get LA to become fair free by the time the Olympics were our plan to come to uh, to LA. So it knows it is not just about RTD, but it's about the place where I live, which is the RTD uh, region, and transit and mobility. And I think that the key equity piece should be. Uh, Public transit should be should be uh, should be free or close to free. Mm. You know, uh, there's only one country in the world that does that, and it's a very small country. It's Luxembourg. Mm. Yeah, so Luxembourg is able to do that, and uh, it has great benefit. Um, their carbon footprint per capita is a lot smaller than most nations, and so on. And so it the the issue is then not only about mobility, but 
the effect that mobility has on on air quality and mm. uh, lifestyle and, and so on. Now we're seeing with the pandemic how people re uh, retreated back home and started commuting more from work like we're doing you know a few years ago probably would have done this in a studio mm -hmm. but now we can do it from our own homes uh, so that is good because uh, you didn't have to drive to the studio i didn't have to drive there and or take a bus or whatever and mm -hmm. and then our carbon footprints in that sense get reduced um so I think that is that is key. And then the other thing is just provide uh, uh, that type of architecture that that is that is selfless, that is community oriented, and and so on. So I'm excited about uh, what I do. Uh, my role has changed uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, I, I am I am now for the first time in many years. I am just an architect. When I came to RTD, my title was senior architect and urban designer. With the pandemic, um, we laid off about 500 people. Wow. And, and I am the only architect that remains <laughs> in the organization. So um, it is a great responsibility and uh, it's also a challenge for somebody who has been thinking uh, in global terms uh, down to, you know, sometimes to specify materials for for a remodel and so on. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So you, you brought this up a little bit and, and uh, your, your name came to me again recently because of this, because of the, uh, the Fuller traveling scholarship. Uh, so you're, you're studying the, the troglodyte, troglodyte architecture. Let's hear more about that. Yeah. So uh, most people in the U S don't know what the word, uh, troglodyte means uh, it's not the same in Colombia. In Colombia, it's used as an insult. Hmm. Yeah, when you call somebody a troglodyte, basically you're telling that person you're a caveman. Hmm. Pretty much how we use the term Neanderthal here hmm. in the U.S. Yeah, like like you are a Neanderthal or so on. Yeah. So so uh, troglodyte comes from the Greek as uh, uh, troglos and dytos is basically to go into a hole. Hmm. Yeah. And so uh, a, a, a troglodyte dwelling is a cave. So the title of my research is learning from troglodyte architecture. And this is where we go into the real uh, nitty gritty of the regenerativism because um, the troglodyte dwellings that I am studying are still inhabited. Hmm. One of them, probably for continuously for the last 30,000 years. So from the upper Neolithic, we have people living in the same place. There has to be something that is right about this place. Hmm. Others are a lot newer. Um, you uh, actually, what, we, what got my idea going was uh, during the beginning of the pandemic, we saw a movie, Pain and Glory by Pedro Almodovar. Hmm with uh, Antonio Banderas as uh, playing Pedro Almodovar. And uh, one of the early scenes, or one of the scenes in which uh, the character, the main character was a child was in a cave dwelling. And that kind of um, made me remember my family's geographic atlas. There were three big tomes 
with pictures and descriptions of countries and places and so on. And the ones that stuck the most in my memory were uh, Cappadocia and Guadix in Spain, which are uh, troglodyte villages. Uh, actually, uh, Goreme, the one in Cappadocia, Turkey. And uh, uh, so I was, uh, that kind of revived that interest. So I said, hey, well, what about this? And so on. So, so uh, the uh, Robert Fuller uh, and his wife's foundation um, gave me uh, the ability to really look in, into this. Um, so, what am I looking for? What are the lessons that I'm trying to look for? And as I am discovering, it is that slow tech is the best alternative to high tech. Hmm. And uh, but we're in such a hurried uh, moment, you know, in history, in the human history, that we want to innovate every minute. Uh, whereas you look at these villages, hold on, they adapted over thousands of years because they were filling the earth, they were filling the land, they were adapting to it. They, there was obviously an ability to uh, allow people to live in these holes in the ground. And some of those have evolved uh, a lot better. For instance, in Goreme, we have places that were caves uh, several hundred years ago, but now you have built fronts to that. And so these are beautiful buildings with a cave integrated to it. Hmm. The same the same in Guadix. Uh, uh, and in uh, in Ia, uh, spelled O-I-A, Ia, uh, Greece, which is one of the villages in the island of Santorini, hmm. or it's actually a couple islands, uh, which is basically uh, a really remarkable story because the about three thousand years ago, the uh, or hold on, it's three thousand BC, maybe it's in the pre-Hellenic times. There was a, uh, a volcanic uh, eruption in this island. The island is basically on the caldera of uh, a volcano. Hmm. And it took the city of Akrotiri, which was the uh, the, the pre-Hellenic settlement there, and, uh, and just obliterated it. But people came back a few hundred years after, and um, the tuff and the uh, volcanic rock were easy to carve in, so they made their dwellings in these caves and and so on. So has now become, because of the magnificent uh, landscape of the area, has become one of the uh, one of the tourist destinations of the world. So if you hear the word Santorini and, and you know, oh yeah, that's a place <laughs> where rich people go vacationing, but there is more than that. Uh, uh, so we're going to be exploring that and, and so on. So I'll be talking to the uh, Denver and Colorado architects about this uh, after I return and have uh, some good images and stories to share. Yeah, fantastic. I look, I look forward to seeing that and seeing the, the sort of results of it. Well, you know, I, um, I've heard you speak once and I ran into you at, at CU one time as we were both leaving the building. And I think I went I went like one or two blocks out of my way just to keep walking with you because the the conversation that we had just in those two blocks was so engaging. So I, 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 I wanted to have you on the show and just have another, have another talk. And, um, it's been really fun. So, uh, 
thank, thanks for coming and thanks for your, your leadership in the, the city and, and all the, the kind of explorations you're doing around, especially for equity. So thanks for well, I really talking. appreciate that, Adam. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I love the idea of uh, this uh, Riverside.fm. I think mm -hmm. it's, it's great. Um, I hope that uh, this actually gets some people thinking about uh, their own their own paths. I, I really ask architects to be engaged and uh, and involved and try to make a difference, not just by designing a building, but uh, being part of the community and just uh, being in tune with their own um, aspirations. You know, how do you want to change the world? What is what is uh, what is the part of the world that you want to change? So for me, is the regenerativism for you and for others would be something else. So just, just do it. We can only make a better world if, if we want to. Yeah, right. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to this week's show. You can visit architecting.com. That's architect-ing.com to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. Yeah. Well, I almost lost, I almost lost uh, uh, hope hmm. uh, this week. <clears throat> uh, I was sitting where I am right now and somebody broke in the house hmm. and was 13 feet away from where I am. Wow. Took my wife purse. I was kind of like this. I, I didn't notice that person and so on. And uh, so that burglary uh made me doubt for more than a minute like uh, about humanity wow. and and the and the project on colfax you know mm. where we have already seen people uh, uh throwing paint and uh tagging and so on i mean nobody is doing really good graffiti that's my that's my <laughs> problem with it you know yeah um hmm. but uh so 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 that was a challenge but it goes to the uh where, where i was going with this is to the conversation that we're going to have with don uh which is the the one about equity we are seeing more and more people on the streets people living on the streets yeah and probably the burglar that got here is not a street dweller um or as the city of denver calls them an unhoused person um but uh there are people more desperate and so on and that is part because of the uh the the the, the way our economic structure is set first of all we are not taxing ourselves enough to have the social responsibility that we need mm -hmm. to have right yeah so uh and, and and we vilify the idea of uh, social housing. Hmm. Um, actually, we call it here, what is it, subsidized housing or hmm. whatever. And I think that like you do hospitals and prisons and uh, everything else that makes your society work, housing should be one of those elements. And we're not doing any of those right, by the way. You know, our prison system is 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 not 
uh, well set up and, and so on. But um, we we are not, if you look at uh, Northern European countries like Norway and Sweden and Denmark, um, you see that uh, they tax themselves enough to allow to provide for the people who need it. That is the cost of society. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you live in fear that you will get, you will get home invaded and so on. Uh, I mean, there's no direct correlation between that and what happened this week. Mm -hmm. But uh, but the the what drives somebody to live on the street or to uh, be a, a thief of opportunity. Uh, has to do in part of how what opportunities you had as you were growing up, you know, where were you at that point, uh, and so on. Um, so, uh, so we're doing the small things. Uh, so my contribution as the as a planning board member is is minimal. We keep on pushing for higher densities and for more. Uh, inclusionary uh, policies and so on. You will hear Don uh, Elliot say, you know, zoning is actually, the, the, the purpose of zoning is to exclude, not to include. Hmm. Yeah? Uh, zoning is regulation that tells you, you cannot do this here, right? Mm -hmm. That's what zoning is. And it is based a lot on here in the in the US, uh, based a lot on redlining. Mm -hmm. So, so we we are so we're talking a lot about additional dwelling units lately. And one of my pushes at in the planning board is like uh, to city council is you guys have to do uh, um, legislative additional dwelling units throughout the throughout the city because the planning board is doing it on a piecemeal basis. Only one council district has passed two uh, uh, smaller districts for ADUs. Hmm. Um, and and uh, so obviously the other side of the question is like, hey, you are attacking the bedrock of uh, of, of American, uh, you know, living, which is the single family home. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, we're not there anymore. <laughs> we are we are at a different point. It has to do a lot with uh, what I was talking about, mobility and and so on. It's our we we cannot be a regenerative city. Denver cannot be a regenerative city today with the uh, with the way we are set up. Single family homes are. I mean, you can still have your single family home, but come on, <laughs> you can allow somebody to live on an apartment on top of your garage, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the other question is like, okay, who can afford that? You know, if you were the homeowner, it's going to cost you at least a hundred thousand dollars, if not more, you know, and the payback is going to be very slow. Yeah. So, so go ahead. No, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm in the process of sort of planning one for my backyard and, and thinking through it. And, uh, um, just the, the sort of paybacks there are in the possibilities. And, um, 
you know, I, I sort of, so, sort of similar to you, I was kind of two years, two years, two years, two years at different places. And one of those was in the Netherlands. And so really living in that dense urban environment and just, just loving it, just of, of the public transit and, and the, the townhomes that, that we were kind of in. And, and like you're saying, those sort of inner block uh, environments, you know, where you kind of have everybody's backyard backing up to each other and creating that life. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm here on, you know, in, in kind of sunny side where we have on a 25 foot lot, you know, and, and nice and tight with people and um, enjoying that. But, you know, obviously values of homes are just exploding and, and people are putting in ADUs, but they're, it's just getting tighter and tighter. And I think, think in a good way, um, but challenging people's expectations. So, so then, so then their question is, well, where is the subsidy going to come from Mm, for mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's very little. Uh, So, and, and this is where Denver probably is not getting it right because we're saying to developers, okay, you know, you get an incentive for more uh, construction area if you do um, whatever, 80% AMI and so on. Mm -hmm. Well, that is just not the right approach. We favor developers, the big developers a lot. Whereas uh, we we only have like three or four major, uh, and they are not major in reality, but three or four established uh, nonprofit organizations that uh, work on this: the Urban Land Conservancy and a few others. Yeah, there's not that many, hmm. and and uh, you should be able to say, hey, uh, what if we do a nonprofit here and we help develop whatever five ADUs. Uh, per semester hmm. in the neighborhoods where we need them and and so on and we then how would you finance that and that's what I was talking about we don't get ourselves taxed enough because mm-hmm. we should be taxing ourselves to allow for that and to allow for for uh, free public transportation and and so on um, yeah it's a uphill battle huh yeah but necessary the year i was or the two years that i was one of the two years that i was uh director of uh the aa colorado denver was the pandemic year so really uh, it was uh, and it was the first year of the pandemic so it was a real challenge to uh to to get things going but um, you know, I, I was, I guess my, my job there was kind of in a way not to become an interpreter, but to be a representative of everybody and bring things forward. So the, some of the policy issues that came back, uh, were not as, as, uh, as hot during the pandemic year. But one of the things that I think that the AIA can be really helpful, especially the legislative committee, is to, to help uh, shape the dialogue about ADUs, hmm. uh, not only in Denver, but in the, uh, in the Denver metro region and um, uh, 
throughout the state, you know, like, let's talk about density because it's a dirty word and it shouldn't be. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you. It's been great talking. Right. Yeah. Have a thank good you, day. Adam. Yeah. See ya. You take care. Bye. Goodbye. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.